0: Journeys of Faith. We're back and welcome to season three. I'm your host, Paula Ferris. We know in this election cycle, you're going to be inundated with political news, but we're doing something different. We're going to be speaking with 2020 candidates and other political figures about their personal faith and how it influences person and policy. I think
1: we're at a crossroads and I want to make sure that I'm one of the people who's on the team with the
0: Angels. Our next guest is one of the billionaires in the race for 2020. He's been called a rich guy who's ready to rumble on climate change, but he's also been criticized for buying his way into the race. I'm talking to Tom Steyer. Now, climate change is really his thing. He says it would be his number one priority. In this episode, I ask him how his faith informs his views on climate change. We also tackle the criticism he's faced for profiting off the same companies that he's now trying to thwart. Here's Tom Steyer talking about the moment he decided God was real, the very unique ritual that he does every day, and why he'd declare a state of emergency on day one of his presidency. My next guest has been called a rich guy who's ready to rumble <laughs> on climate change. He's got a great laugh, too. Tom Steyer, welcome to the podcast. A rich guy who's ready to rumble <laughs> on, on climate, climate change. change. What do you think about that assessment? I read that in in a magazine article. About that isn't you.
1: exactly how I define myself, Paula. <laughs> <but I laughs>
0: Let me, why don't you introduce yourself? What is your like three-sentence bio? How do you describe yourself, Tom?
1: Well, I mean, I describe myself as a political activist
0: mm-hmm.
1: and who's running for president. Mm-hmm. But I also, when people, I think people tend to describe me as a rich guy or a billionaire. And I like to talk about my family because mm-hmm. I feel that, you know, who I am is really defined much more by what I've done and the values that I grew up with in my yeah. family than by how whether, whether I'm rich.
0: You don't want your money to be your legacy.
1: Oh, goodness gracious. I mean, I say people whose net worth is their self-worth. Mm-hmm have lost all perspective on life and values and what we're on this planet to do.
0: So you have never run for elected office except for when you were in boarding school and you were student body president. What makes you think that you can take on and defeat Donald Trump?
1: Well, for the last 10 years, I have been organizing coalitions of ordinary American citizens to take on unchecked corporate power, and we've been winning. I've run campaigns against oil companies and won. I've run campaigns up against monopoly utilities and won. I closed a billion-dollar corporate tax loophole and gave the money to the public schools. I've taken on the tobacco companies who'd won 17 times in a row and won. And by the way, if Mr. Trump is going to run, if he survives on his economic prowess, and I'm the person who, someone who built his own business from scratch, over 27 years into a big international business, I can expose him for what he is. He's a fraud and a failure as a businessman. He's Mm -hmm. a fake. He's a fraud and a failure as a president and a steward of our economy. And I think I'm the person who can go toe-to-toe with him on that. And I feel very comfortable that I can expose him.
0: Do you think the rest of the field, do you think they take you seriously?
1: Well, let me put it to you this way, Paula. They're moving forward in an impeachment two years Mm -hmm. after I started the need to impeach petition drive. Okay. Two years after I did over 50 town halls around the country with the American people pushing and pushing and pushing for the people inside the Beltway to do the right thing and the whole, hold the most corrupt president in American history to account.
0: Do you think it's going to tear our country apart? And do you think it's going to work against the Democratic Party?
1: No. I don't think that doing no, the right thing. No. Look, when you're faced with a huge question, like a corrupt president who's working against the interest of the American people and breaking his oath to the Constitution. Do I believe that doing the right thing is what's important? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I my father is from New York, first generation in our family to go to college, was a lawyer, left, co- left his law practice to go into the Navy in World War II and prosecuted the Nazis at Nuremberg. And his message to my two older brothers and me growing up was, when you see something that's really wrong, you fight it. Mm-hmm. You you absolutely fight it, and the, people will have a million reasons why fighting evil is a, is not going to work or it's not the right thing to do. But actually, what you have to do is push that noise out of your head mm-hmm. and do the right thing. And that's what I've been pushing for two years.
0: You, you mentioned your childhood, your father. Your father's Jewish. Your yep. mother was Episcopalian, right? Right. So, how did that manifest itself in the Steyer home? Did you go to church? Um, Everything. Did you go to synagogue?
1: Everything. We, we, literally, my parents left it up to us. I, you know we went, They didn't
0: give you a choice. Like my kids every Sunday morning, I'm dragging them to church whether they want to or not. They don't have a choice in the matter.
1: <laughs> my parents would take us to church and to synagogue. Okay. They basically left it up to me and my brothers to decide what we believed. So that's what I did growing up. And I also was aware growing up that people could believe in God and pursue faith. From different angles. Mm-hmm. And still, that didn't reflect on them being right or wrong. It was their way of seeing it.
0: Okay.
1: So when I was about 30, I, I called my mom and I said, you're not going to believe this, but I really believe in God.
0: At 30 years old, you have this conversation yeah. with her.
1: I called her up. I'm living in California. She's uh-huh. living in New York. And she goes, Sonny, there are a lot of people who are a hell of a lot smarter than you that believe in God. Don't sound so smug.
0: <laughs> oh, so, so all of a sudden, 30 years old, you have this, this watershed moment. You believe in God. Why? What was the catalyst?
1: Look, I think what I was searching for then and what I think is important to me is feeling like there's a connectedness to my life and that, in fact, what I'm doing makes sense while I'm on the earth and that there's a purpose to it and that the values that i believe in make sense in mm. the context of the physical world and the other human beings on the planet and kind of a continuum of life on earth i want to feel as if i'm part of that continuum in a positive way and that my time here is right. not empty but it's in fact infused with value beyond myself
0: so do you describe yourself as a christian as an episcopalian how do you how would you describe yourself in terms of your I, faith? Look,
1: in so. terms of my faith, I'd say both. Okay. You know, I think every—I I really believe people have to find their own way to God, the thing that makes it meaningful and personal and deep for them. And so whatever that way is, I support other people in doing it. Mm-hmm. This is my way of doing it, my way of getting a perspective on life, my way of finding the deepest meaning in things, and really thinking about life from a value-based spiritual perspective
0: mm-hmm. how did you you said it this happened when you were 30 so how did you find your way to god
1: well i think that i'd really been searching for a while i think that i'd been thinking about it and wondering what do i really deeply believe in my soul what is it that you know when push comes to shove in the two o'clock in the morning in the dark by myself what do i really believe and i said that's what i believe
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that you know that i'm going to let that be the thing that organizes how you know how I think about values? How mm-hmm. I think about my time? How I think about my relationship to other people and to the planet?
0: So you're not just somebody that's a casual Christian. You this is something that you take with you 24 seven, even attending church on weekends.
1: You know what I do actually, Paula? I try and write a cross on my hand. The, Jer- the Jerusalem cross, correct? Yeah. Do you there- have
0: it on your hand right now? You do. This is audio only, so describe what a Jerusalem cross, for those that don't know what it looks like, describe what it looks like. I mean,
1: you draw a cross, and then you put a little cross in each quadrant of the cross. Five crosses. Yeah, I just do it to remind myself that if you do the right thing, it works out.
0: So every time you look down on your left hand and you see that Jerusalem cross, you're reminded of?
1: Do the right thing.
0: You draw that on your hand how often? Every morning. Why don't you just get a tattoo?
1: Because actually doing it is important to me.
0: it's the process.
1: It's like you want to remind yourself, okay, here's what I'm doing today.
0: Is that safe ink, by the way?
1: I doubt it. (laughs) Sometimes I think, I am a dope. He lived a good life, but he died of ink poisoning. I'm going to cut that hand off.
0: (laughs) Um, You know, I've I've been doing quite a bit of research on you, and I, I read that you had this radical reawakening after the financial crisis or during the financial crisis about 10 or a little over 10 years ago. What was it that was in that moment that, for you, gave you a reawakening and a rebirth and a rediscovery of your faith?
1: Well, you know, it actually happened much earlier than that.
0: It happened much earlier. I
1: mean, and this isn't just about faith. This is kind of thinking about what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Look, it, I was basically started a business the beginning of eighty six.
0: A hedge fund. Yes, you my, turned millions into billions. The hedge fund was Farallon Capital. Right.
1: Okay. So basically, investing money for college foundations and endowments, taking their savings their assets and trying to grow them and i'd been doing it for a while and i love investing you know i love kind of figuring out how economies work what makes countries prosperous what makes companies work but i also had four kids so now i have a completely different perspective on life Mm -hmm. and george w bush was president and i felt as if oh my goodness he's going to really hurt americans that i don't believe he's going to be a good president i'm worried about what he's going to do and I don't, I don't feel like I can sit by mm. and look at my kids in the face and look at my supposed someday grandkids in the face and say, what did you do when someone was really hurting America? I, I just can't do it. I've got to make sure that I'm working on behalf of Americans on behalf of the country. I really did. I felt like, oh, my gosh, this guy's going to set us back I've do something. So I worked hard for John Kerry because I felt like he would be a good president, that he would get us back on track, and that that was the right thing for me to mm-hmm. do. And obviously didn't win. Yeah, And so I was – it was really that sense of, oh my gosh, the system itself isn't working. I've got to somehow participate to make sure that the system itself does work. And I thought that was the smartest thing that I could do, the thing that would work. And it didn't work. But then I was kind of in the mode of, okay, so mm-hmm. now I'd have to – as opposed to disengage, I'd started to engage – Now I really have to
0: engage. Yeah, and and in the midst of this, you're building an enormous amount of wealth. You're a billionaire, correct? Yes. But you've also signed the bill and the giving pledge. And for those that aren't familiar with it, you're making a pledge to donate the majority of your wealth in your lifetime.
1: To good causes. Mm -hmm. But let me say this. I did that because I think it's important to make the statement. I signed that for that reason. It wasn't going to, I was always intending to do that. Mm -hmm. I've always felt as if, my goodness! I know how lucky I've been. That isn't on me. That every everything yeah. I've had has been based on what people have done for me, and that what the United States is, and what people have done for the United States to create our country over—not even before our country was a
0: country—for
1: mm-hmm. hundreds of years, people doing the right thing, even if it didn't help them. Right? You know, I I always think. When I think about our rule of law, I remind myself that for hundreds of years, very ignorant young people have gone off to support the rule of law, decency, democracy, and risk their lives and often given their lives. Mm-hmm. So when I think about how fortunate I've been, I never forget what people have sacrificed to create that I was able to, that supported me and made my life possible.
0: You're such an unusual an, an dynamic because... For most people with an exorbitant amount of wealth, that's how they define themselves. And for you, it's almost like you kind of want to push it to the side. You, you don't want to be known as the guy that built a billion-dollar empire. You don't want to be known as the hedge fund guy.
1: I don't. you want You're a legacy. Right.
0: You want a legacy completely separate from your money.
1: Look, I would like people to feel like I made a real contribution, that I feel this country, honestly, mm-hmm. is at a crossroads. Obviously, I think Mr. Trump was a terrible, terrible, terrible mistake, but an understandable one. Because Americans across the country, between the two parties, almost everybody thinks corporations have bought our government Mm -hmm. and that the government doesn't serve them or even care about or respect them. And so I think people voted for Mr. Trump out of kind of a sense of, my gosh, this system is so broken. Maybe this guy will go in with a hammer. And we can start afresh. Mm -hmm. And that's an impulse that I think people share on the Democratic side and the Republican side.
0: If elected, though, you're going to have to represent those people that did vote for Mr. Trump and probably still support Mr. Trump. How can you be the president to them as well if elected? Because
1: I think they share the exact same values. I completely agree with what you said, Paula. If I'm president, I'm going to be president of every American. And I have absolutely no qualms about going to those people and saying what we're going to do is going to specifically help you and your family. I think Mr. Trump's whole point is it's a zero-sum game in America. There's so much income and so much assets, and if someone else gets some, they're taking it out of your pocket. So we, I'm only representing you, and we're going to take it away from them and give it to you. And I don't believe that for one second. I think that's entirely illogical, inaccurate, divisive, and wicked. I think the truth is we grow together, and that if someone does well, if a kid is supported, and educated and grows up well in Appalachia, that's great for the people in California. And if someone in Compton, a kid, does the exact same thing, that's great for the people in Kentucky.
0: We'll be right back after the break. Climate change is your thing. And then immigration. How does your faith inform those two policies in in particular?
1: Well, let's talk for a second about climate. I've said I would declare a state of emergency on day one. I would use the emergency powers of the presidency to deal with it on day one. I'd call on Congress to pass something like the Green New Deal in the first 100 days. I'd make it the number one priority of foreign policy because unless we make do that and reestablish establish the United States as a moral and technological and commercial leader in mm-hmm. the world, we can't get it done. Mm-hmm. When you think about it in terms of faith, you're thinking about two things. You're thinking about protecting God's
0: earth. God says to be a good steward of what we've been given.
1: That's our job. Mm-hmm. So you can't do that and not, in fact, take care of the earth as you watch it change in a way that could be devastating, not just for, for us, but for everything on earth. Second thing mm-hmm. is you can't really do this without being aware that you're protecting the most vulnerable people amongst us who will suffer disproportionately. So when you think about this, that's why I mentioned environmental justice. In fact, this isn't spread equally throughout society the places where pollution has hit in the United States have been low-income communities predominantly and communities of color. And we have to be aware in moving forward that that bias, which has been consistent and cruel, doesn't reappear, that in fact we're aware that those are the frontline communities in this fight, and we have to make sure that they aren't disadvantaged, they're in fact protected Mm -hmm. specifically.
0: How does your faith inform your views on abortion? Because you just talked about the most vulnerable, and some will say those in the womb are the most vulnerable. Yes,
1: I feel as if on abortion, I'm in favor of a woman's right to choose. As a man, I sit there and say, when I think, look at Paula, I believe she is the person who should make this decision. I know there are going to be laws and rules and Roe versus Wade and all this stuff, but ultimately, what I see is a human being with her family deciding when
0: to have kids. Do you not see the child in the womb as vulnerable?
1: I do, and there's been this legal question about when that flips over from being to become a person. Well, I've let the courts decide, but in my opinion, the key question here is to trust women to be moral with their own bodies and with their families. With our fourth kid, Kat was more than 35 years old, and the numbers flipped that after 35, she decided it was worth it to get an amniocentesis mm-hmm. to see if, they, if our unborn child had a birth defect. So we walk in, and she, it was very clear to me that Kat was making a decision in the conversation with the nurse as she was explaining the procedure that under no circumstances was she not going to have that kid. Regardless, regardless, of, regardless of,
0: of what the results were. Did not matter. Mm-hmm.
1: And my point being, she was making her decision mm. about what to do for her body and for that kid. Right. Period. And it was very clear to me that I was not part of that conversation. That there, it, there really, I had nothing to do with that conversation. That she had made a decision and that was what it was going to be. And it was 100% decision and 0% decision.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Which was, I thought, fine.
0: What's the government's role with gun control? If it's about making decisions for ourselves, well, where do you stand on that control?
1: Look, I think we have an out-of-control society when it comes to guns. And so am I in favor of mandatory background checks on every gun purchase? Yes. But so are 90% of Americans. Mm-hmm. Am I in favor of banning assault weapons? Yes. And high-capacity magazines. So there are two things I'd say about gun violence and guns. The reason that the American public is not getting what it wants from Congress and hasn't for decades with regards to gun violence is because gun manufacturers control the Congress through the NRA. And that's something that, that is actually a central or the central part mm-hmm. of my campaign saying, look, we have to take back this government. It's been bought by the corporations.
0: Right. How do you reconcile the fact that you have amassed such an enormous amount of wealth, but you've profited from some of the same companies that you're now trying to stop trying to thwart. How do you reconcile that?
1: Well, look, I when we, when we were investing, I started investing in everything in the American economy. And I realized over time that some things were really, you know, I didn't realize that climate change was such a huge thing. When I did realize it, which was over a decade ago, you know, I took a a, a step to divest myself. I've worked hard I, to stop climate change for 10 years and done a, had a lot of success. Doing that. So it's I'm asking Americans to do exactly what I did, which is decide, oh my God, we all come from a fossil fuel economy, Paula. Every single one of us grew up in an economy that was fueled by oil, gas, and coal. Mm -hmm. And we have to realize, which I realized, oh my gosh, there is this side effect that is devastating for us and we have to move to a clean energy economy. And that's what I'm saying to Americans is, we need to move. Mm -hmm. There's new evidence. I realized it over 10 years ago. Do what I did and make the change and we can do it and we can do it in a way that will make us healthier, cleaner air, cleaner water, richer, more jobs, better paid jobs. This is something where we can create great – we can lead the world again. Mm -hmm. And so I look at this as something, yeah, we all need to make a change. I made that change. And I'm saying to everybody else, it's really important that we do this together.
0: You want that to be your lasting legacy. I'm curious to hear what you say about this description. Men's Journal, they wrote that you want to be but the year one. What was this? Um, Men's Journal, this was a couple years ago. I think it was in the 2000s, put it that way. Um, but they wrote that you want to be the one that saves the world. They say he lays out a vision for his life's work that allows for at least one ostentatious trophy to be the man who saved the world. Do you feel like you want to be the one that saves the world?
1: I, that is not how I'd say it. I would say this, what I said earlier, I think we're at a crossroads and I want to make sure that I am one of the people who's on the team with the angels. I mean, we're on a, we're in a conversation about faith. I really see it that way. I want to make absolutely sure that I'm giving everything I can on the side of the angels. And that I take, they're right. I take that super seriously. Do I think it has to be me? No, but do I think it has to be us? Yeah, I do.
0: How do you reconcile balance of power between religion and government? How do you, what are the proper boundaries between religion and government, the separation of church and state? What does that mean to you?
1: Look, I think about my religion as giving me the values and the framework for thinking about everything, including government. And so when I think about, you know, you were asking me, how do I think about climate in terms of faith? And I could explain it to you. So I think everybody should be coming to the, to questions of government with values in mind and should be trying to do the right thing. And I say, look, if you come that way, if you tell the truth and put the American people first and try and do the right thing, if we disagree on everything, I'm fine with that. I'm absolutely fine. That's called democracy. So when I, I think about religion as being infusing you with the values you care the most about, but the reason... That the Constitution separates church and state, religion and government is because if you bring it directly into the government where you say, I'm in contact with God, this is what I think because this is what God thinks, you really can't have a conversation.
0: In that same breath, do you still think that we are a Judeo-Christian country, which many religious leaders would describe us as?
1: I think that historically we were overwhelmingly Judeo-Christian, and I think that even when you look at that description, you can see that, in fact, we're much more multiple than that, that we have a lot of people who are coming here who are Muslims. We have a lot of people who are coming here who are Hindus. We have a lot of young people who are really struggling with traditional faith and finding their own ways to God. And to me, that's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, I get back to this question— Look, everybody has to find their own way, and I support them. But, I, but the key to me is not how you do it, it's whether you do it. Mm-hmm. Because I really think it's important. it was really important for me, and I hope other people see it this way too, that finding that core of what we're doing on this planet, how we're making contributions, how we're pot- part of a positive life force on this planet is really important to me, and I hope it is mm-hmm. to other people too, because I think if you have that attitude regardless of how you express it then you're going to come out in a good place and we can meet.
0: Do you still feel like that our currency should say in God we trust do you still feel that we are one nation under God? Yes. Yes to both of those. Yes. I look, it.
1: I in in my opinion on this. Look, we are a spiritual nation. We are mm-hmm. a religious nation. I think that's one of our great strengths. I think that that gives us the courage to do what's right. And I think that that's you know that is a huge huge point. Have the courage to do what's right. That's what America's been built on, in my
0: opinion. Are you comfortable talking about your faith on the campaign trail?
1: Totally. I think in order for people to trust you, they have to know you. And I think in order for people to know you, you've got to be willing to expose yourself, to be vulnerable, to explain, look, this is who I am. And I think that people can relate to, you know, I think people relate when you're honest. And I think if you can be honest, even if it's the thing that you're most uptight about talking about or the thing that is the most, that's probably the most personal thing about you. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So when they see, I really am scared of this, or I really feel like this is such a huge thing to me, they can relate as a person like, of course, everybody
0: has mm-hmm. It seems like faith has been one of those buzzwords that the Republican party has owned for so long you think that that, that faith listen, is throwing a wider net and that it's so. that's playing a huge role you know
1: it's funny so i was talking at the democratic national convention in 2012 mm-hmm. which was the convention which you know renominated barack obama for president right. and i was giving a speech a short speech on the environment and i one of the things i said paula was we need to protect god's earth and the, the people who were vetting the speech were like oh you can't use the word god and i was like you can't use the they word God. And I was like, well, no, that's the point of my speech. And they're like, no, no, you can't use the word God. And I said, you don't understand. That's what the speech is about. I have to use the word God. So eventually they let me use it. But it was like, it, they literally did not want to let me use the mm-hmm. word God on that's, TV. That's
0: if your personal values and your faith conflict with the Constitution. How do you reconcile that?
1: My experience in life has been that when I've seen what I think is right, I've tried to do it. And impeachment's a perfect example. Okay, It's like no one in the Democratic Party wanted me to do that in the leadership in Washington, D.C. People gave me, said it was the wrong. I said, no, this is the right thing to do. We're doing it because this is a right or wrong issue. When I started working on climate more than a decade ago, people were like, that's not an issue, Tom. That, I don't know what mm-hmm. that is, but that's not. And I was like, no, this is a huge deal. We really have to do this. And, I've, and it, the question is how best to do this, not whether to do
0: this. You're going to look down at your left hand and you're going to say, do the right thing. Who are your spiritual influences?
1: Look, I don't think you can be an American in 2019 and not be thinking about Martin Luther King when you talk about God. I mean, it's clear that he is somebody whose vision was driven by his faith. Mm-hmm. In a very important way. So, I mean, to mm-hmm. me, there are people out there who can put the world in perspective from a spiritual standpoint that is extraordinary. And it's, you know, I think I was in San Francisco about five years ago, and my, it was a Sunday morning, and it was only me and my youngest son. So, if it was five years ago, he was around 20. And I said, Henry, get out of bed and let's go to church. And he was like, Oh dad. <laughs> and I said, "No, you're going to want to do this. Just trust me. You are going to want to do it because Bishop Tutu was coming to church." Oh, cool. Exactly. And that's what he said. Oh, wow. He's like, "Thank you for getting you buried me." The lead. Bad, dad. "You dad.
0: You don't even have to say come to church. You want to see Bishop Tutu? <laughs> come, let's go." <laughs>
1: but my point is, there are people like that where you understand much more deeply what the journey is that we're all mm-hmm. on and what it is we should be holding up in our in front of our face all the time. And so to me, that's always—you know, I also think music's a huge part of this. You know, it, it, to me, listening to religious music is something that like I Like gospel, find, worship. Gospel, worship, all kinds. What's be- your
0: playlist look like then?
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you this song that I heard in church this Sunday that I love, which I listen to uh, on my iPod all the time, is— uh, Bomb in Gilead. Do you know that song? There is a bomb in In Gilead. Uh I love those songs. You know, I saw the movie about uh, Aretha Franklin in 1971 Uh singing gospel in the first missionary Baptist church in Uh uh, L.A. It's like Uh, knocks you out. I mean, music really works and reminds you about, you know, where your soul really is. You know, Mm -hmm. I love religious
0: music. If you had to describe your faith in one (laughs) word— what it means to you? How would you, could you just find one word to summarize your faith, Tom? Positive. Positive. I like That's that. That's how
1: I see it. It's like such a positive part of my life. It's such an enriching part of my life. Mm-hmm. I do. I would not be doing this if I didn't believe in God. I would not be feeling the same way about getting you, up. You by the
0: morning. say wouldn't be doing this. You I wouldn't, wouldn't be, be running for
1: president. Okay. I wouldn't be getting. I wouldn't feel the same way about getting up in the morning. Mm. I wouldn't feel the same way about my time on it, really.
0: That's, really. that's really great. Where do you think you'd be without it?
1: I, has, I don't even want to think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> really?
0: Yeah. It's been great talking to you. Paula, what a treat. Yeah. And and again, can we find some ink that we know is safe <laughs> for your left hand? And please Boy, consider a I tattoo. Boy, would I be upset if it <laughs> turned out and I'm voicing myself. <laughs> well, best of luck. It's a, it's a long road. It's a long journey. I know you're really passionate about, about the space. And best of luck to you, Tom. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Journeys of Faith. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. And let us know what you think with a rating and a review. Journeys of Faith, it's a production of ABC Audio, produced by Whitney Lloyd, Lewis Millman, and Susie Liu. Thanks again for listening. I'm Paula Ferris.